Mark, this is Democracy Now! Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. President Biden's defending the stability of the U.S. banking system after the second and third largest bank failures in the nation's history. We'll look at how executives at the now-collapsed Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank pushed for the weakening of banking regulations enacted after the 2008 financial crisis. Then we go to Atlanta to look more at the police killing of Tortuguita, an activist shot dead while protesting the construction of a massive police training facility known as Cop City. An independent autopsy suggests Tortuguita was sitting cross-legged with their hands raised when police shot them 14 times. We'll speak to the family's attorney and hear from Tortuguita's mother. I want answers for my child homicides. I'm asking for answers to my child homicide. I am suffering for my right to do, to this answer and that I have not been given and I des- deserve I deserve answers. <laughs> All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Joe Biden has approved a massive ConocoPhillips oil and gas development in Alaska. The $7 billion Willow Project is expected to produce 180,000 barrels of oil per day, adding some 240 million metric tons of greenhouse gas pollution to the atmosphere over 30 years. Some of Biden's fellow Democrats, including Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, blasted the decision— saying it, quote, leaves an oil stain on the administration's climate accomplishments and the president's commitment not to permit new oil and gas drilling on federal land, unquote. This is Kristen Monsell, senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. I think he is trying to appease the Alaska delegation and you know fossil fuel cronies in in Congress and that's incredibly disappointing to see. We don't have time to compromise when it comes to addressing the climate crisis. Biden can't have his cake and and eat it too when it comes to handling what is an existential crisis. To see our interview on the Willow Project, go to democracynow.org. In southern Africa, more than 100 people have been killed in Malawi and Mozambique after Cyclone Freddy brought high winds and heavy rain to the region. Most of the dead were Malawi's commercial capital, Blantyr, where overnight mudslides washed away homes and buried sleeping residents. It was too bad in the night, but now that it is daytime, I can feel the loss. I have never seen something as terrible as this. My neighbors' houses are all gone. The family members are gone. They are missing. In some instances, the father is alive, but the wife and the children are gone. 
Cyclone Freddy was one of the strongest storms ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere and the longest-lasting tropical cyclone on record. It made landfall for a second time, as scientists with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change met in Switzerland to finalize its policy document for shaping climate action over the rest of the decade. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres addressed IPCC delegates by video. This will be the first comprehensive IPCC report in nine years and the first since the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. It could not come at a more pivotal time. Our world is at the crossroads and our planet is in the crosshairs. We are nearing the point of no return, of overshooting the internationally agreed limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. We are at the tip of a tipping point. Brazil's National Space Agency warns in a new report that deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon hit a new record high for the month of February last month. About 124 square miles of rainforest cover was destroyed, despite efforts by newly inaugurated President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva to reverse rampant deforestation that was encouraged by his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. This is Romulo Batista with Greenpeace Brazil. We just left behind a government that supports deforestation and completely abandoned actions to control it. As long as the enforcement and control do not reach the entire region, illegal deforestations may exploit that to ramp up the deforestation. President Biden sought Monday to shore up confidence in the U.S. banking system after the rapid collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank sparked investor panic. They were the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. On Monday, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren demanded a federal probe into potential insider trading by executives at the failed banks and called on U.S. regulators to claw back six-figure bonuses paid to managing directors at SVB just hours before its collapse Friday. We'll have more on this story after headlines. North Korea has fired two short-range ballistic missiles into waters off its eastern coast. It was the second such test in three days and came as the U.S. and South Korea launched 11 days of war games in a major military exercise dubbed Freedom Shield. President Biden has formally unveiled plans to arm Australia with nuclear-powered submarines in a bid to counter China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. Biden announced the agreement alongside U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese at a meeting in San Diego Monday. The deal will see Australia equipped with three conventionally armed Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines by the 2030s, with an option to purchase two more subs as part of a new military alliance called AUKUS. In Beijing, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson called on the U.S., U.K. and Australia to abandon what she called a Cold War mentality and zero-sum game. We believe that the cooperation among the three countries poses a serious nuclear proliferation risk, impacts the international nuclear non-proliferation system, stimulates the arms race, undermines peace and stability in the Asia-Pacific region, and is widely questioned and opposed by regional countries and the international community. Biden's meeting with leaders of the U.K. and Australia came as the Pentagon released its proposed $842 billion budget for fiscal year 2024, requesting $25 billion more than Congress approved last year. It will be the largest so-called peacetime budget in U.S. Mil in U.S. history.
A new study finds the United States remains the world's top arms trader. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, reported Monday the U.S. accounted for 40 percent of the world's weapons exports between 2018 and 2022, selling arms to more than 100 countries. India remains the world's top arms importer, followed by Saudi Arabia, which accounted for nearly 10 percent of the international arms trade. About 80 percent of Saudi weapons purchases come from the United States. The Biden administration's extending humanitarian relief for thousands of Ukrainian refugees who fled Russia's invasion and were processed along the Mexican border, allowing them to remain in the United States beyond the program's initial one-year limit. Similar relief for tens of thousands of Afghan refugees is scheduled to expire in the coming months, but it's unclear whether that relief will be extended, even as Afghanistan is facing a worsening humanitarian crisis following the Taliban's return to power in 2021. Advocates have accused President Biden of hypocrisy in his treatment of Ukrainians compared to most other asylum seekers and refugees. In Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, hundreds of asylum seekers, mostly from Venezuela, were blocked by barbed wire and riot police Sunday as they tried to cross into El Paso, Texas, to finally apply for relief. Some reported they were pepper sprayed. Many of the asylees have waited in Mexico for months, facing extremely dangerous living conditions. Please, we want an answer. The customs app does not work. I am alone. We are alone here. We have been robbed and extorted, and we have no answer. We just want to get in to have a future and help our families. Nothing else. In Honduras, President Xiomara Castro has legalized the use of emergency contraceptive medication overturning a ban that was over a decade old. Castro's executive order was issued on International Women's Day last week. The pill was prohibited following the 2009 U.S.-backed military coup that put a right-wing authoritarian government in power. Abortion is still illegal in Honduras, including in cases of rape, carrying a sentence of up to six years in prison for the people who undergo the procedure, as well as those who provide it. Here in the U.S., a group of Republicans in South Carolina State House have proposed legislation to making to make getting an abortion punishable by the death penalty. The measure would amend the state's code of laws to grant zygotes or fertilized eggs, quote, equal protection under the homicide laws of the state. The bill has gathered the support of nearly two dozen South Carolina House Republicans who now co-sponsor it. Meanwhile, in Texas, a man has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against three women he accuses of illegally assisting his ex-wife in having a medication abortion. Texas's abortion law allows private citizens to file civil suits against abortion providers or anyone who aids or abets an abortion after six weeks. In the United Kingdom, more than 36,000 junior doctors have launched a three-day strike over pay and working conditions at the government-run National Health Service. The walkout follows similar strikes in recent weeks by nurses and ambulance staff. This is Dr. Robert Lawrenson of the British Medical Association, who joined picket lines in London Monday. So junior doctors over the last 15 years have lost 26.1% of their pay due to uh, inflation. And all we're asking for is for that pay to be restored because no junior doctor today is worth less than a junior doctor in 2008. 
Here in New York, a lawyer for Donald Trump says the former president will decline to appear before a grand jury investigating hush money payments made to adult film actor Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. On Monday, Trump's former personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohen spent hours testifying to a state grand jury in Manhattan. Cohen previously pleaded guilty to charges of tax evasion, bank fraud and lying to Congress about the hush money payments, which he says Trump directed him to make. This is not revenge, right? What this is is about accountability. I don't want to see anyone, including Donald Trump, indicted, prosecuted, convicted, incarcerated, simply because I fundamentally disagree with them. This is all about accountability. He needs to be held accountable for his dirty deeds. And the acclaimed Japanese novelist Kenzaburo Oe has died at the age of 88. In 1994, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. In 2014, Democracy Now! interviewed him in Tokyo about his work, militarism, nuclear disarmament, Hiroshima, and more. Kenzaburo Owe spoke through an interpreter. I believe that the, the issue or the experience of nuclear weapons is something too large for any individual to apologize for, and it's the responsibility of all humanity to take on board. So rather than an apology, I believe that what's important is to call for an expression of the will and the dedication to create a world free of nuclear weapons. To see our interview with Kenzaburo Owe, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we look at how executives at the now-collapsed Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank push for the weakening of banking regulations enacted after the 2008 financial crisis. Stay with us. Hiroshima Requiem, music by Hikari Oe, the son of Japanese novelist Kenzaburo Oe, the Nobel Literature Laureate. He has died at the age of 88. In our interview with him, he said his proudest accomplishment was being home every night to tuck his son in. To see the full interview, go to democracynow.org. Yes, this is Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, fallout continues to grow from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. They were the largest bank failures since the 2008 financial crisis and the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. 
Over the weekend, the Biden administration took extraordinary measures to guarantee anyone who had accounts with the collapsed banks would be able to get back all of their money, regardless of the amount. Under standard rules, the FDIC only insures $250,000 per account. The economist Dean Baker described the Biden administration's move as a bailout for bank customers with large deposits. Baker wrote, quote, The reason this is a bailout is that the government is providing a benefit that the depositors did not pay for, unquote. Despite the Biden administration's actions, the stock value of a number of other regional banks have plummeted, raising fears of a larger banking crisis. Just after the stock market opened Monday, President Biden addressed the nation and defended the stability of the U.S. banking system. We must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank including the Dodd-Frank law, to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. During the Trump administration, a number of Democrats joined Republicans in weakening the Dodd-Frank law. Executives from the now-collapsed Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were among those who successfully lobbied to weaken the regulations for mid-sized banks. Those executives included former Congress member Barney Frank who joined the board of Signature Bank after leaving Congress, where he co-authored the Dodd-Frank bill. He lobbied to weaken his own bill. Over the past seven years, Frank received at least $2.4 million in cash and stock from Signature Bank before the bank collapsed. We're now joined by two guests, David Sirota's award-winning investigative reporter, founder of the news website The Lever. His latest piece is headlined, SVB's Lobby Group's Fought Proposal to Bolster Deposit Insurance. He's joining us from Denver, Colorado. And in Irvine, California, we're joined by Marissa Baradaran. She's a banking law professor at the University of California, Irvine. Her books include The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap, and How the Other Half Banks, Exclusion, Exploitation, and the Threat to Democracy. Marissa Baradaran, let's begin with you. Can you respond to what took place over the weekend, the significance of the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history, and how the Biden administration responded? Um, yes, thank you. Thank you for um, having me on. I mean, it, what we saw this weekend was uh, another, another. If anyone's been paying attention, bank run that shouldn't have been a bank run because it doesn't look like a bank. It is something that that smells like and walks like a bank, but wasn't technically, uh, you know, uh, uh, regulated like a bank that it w uh, would be um, that size and shape would be regulated. And so that bank uh, had, a, had a simple run. You know, there's panic caused by, you know, who knows, Peter Thiel and friends. And when there's panic, the bank is not long for this world. And that is exactly what happened um, to SVB Bank. And it is, you know, of course, exactly uh, as what anyone could have pred predicted would happen happened, which is that 
a full force, uh, you know, from 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 Powell to, to Yellen to um, President Biden saying everything's fine. We'll take care of it. I mean, we all saw this. You know, Tim Geithner tried to do in 2009, not as well as uh, what was done here. It's just, you know, you need trust in the system. You need uh, people to put their money, keep their money in because a run is, is really just it's panic. It's psych- psychology. It's, it's uh, a bank that is sa- stable can be run and be unstable. Uh, that's that's all. I, I, everyone could have expected that if you have a run of a bank this size, there would be this this ha- this happening. The problem is that you we kind of lie. We we fudged uh, about it beforehand. You know, we, we said, no, no, this is not that kind of bank. We're not going to bail it out. This is the same thing as we saw with the shadow banking sector. It's the same thing in crypto. It's the same thing we see in any time we create these massive loopholes in the regular law, the law that was made to prevent bank runs. That's the whole banking structure. It's been perforated by holes for the last 30, 40 years by big holes from, you know, you know, from lobbyists, from industry. And when you put a bank in one of those holes and it's a big bank and you see that every venture capital fund is or every startup fund is at that bank, you have to wonder why. And, uh, you know, the, the why is that there were some exceptions. And of course, when those go bad, the, the promises that were made when those exceptions were written into law, which are that it's not like the other banks, it won't have a bailout. Those go away very quickly. Um, and so it's really just about t- truth telling what kind of institution is it and does it have to apply by the rules as every other institution like it uh, i'd like to bring david sirota into the conversation uh, david your reaction to the biden administration's uh, efforts to uh, uh to address this crisis especially given the fact that uh, we've been told now ever since the last major financial crisis in 2008 that it was only the systemically uh, important banks, uh, the J.P. Morgan Chases, the Wells Fargo's, uh, uh, the, uh, the Banks of America that the government had uh, major concerns about. Look, I think the Biden administration was afraid that there would be a wider contagion, that, that people would see one bank's depositors lose their uninsured money and that other people would start pulling their money out of, out of the banks. Now, to my mind, what's insane about this situation is that this bank had, I think, uh, north of 90 percent of the deposits in the bank were uninsured which is insane because FDIC insurance is a, is a kind of well-known thing, $250,000 limits, and there are ways to do all sorts of, uh, of financial management, risk management, uh, where you can have a lot of money in a bank, but, but not 90% of your money, uh, whether you're a business or anything else, is not uninsured. So the failure of risk management practices on uh, many of these depositors, a bank, again, 90% uh, of the deposits being uninsured, really shows, I think, a cavalier attitude by some of these depositors who must have either not done any risk management at all or simply presumed that they would have the political power and wherewithal uh, to get the government uh, in, in, the, for, in, a, in, a, in a crisis, that the government would swoop in and insure those uninsured deposits. As we reported at The Lever, what's, what's very telling here when we talk about deposit insurance is that Silicon Valley Bank's lobby groups in Washington fought recently, fought against a proposal to shore up federal deposit insurance for the relatively depleted uh, deposit insurance fund, the fund that will now guarantee uh, those depositors' deposits. The point being that if we're going to have a discussion about extending uh, deposit insurance uh, and and extending those limits and making sure that uh, those limits, uh, larger limits, apply to everybody, there is a deposit 
deposit insurance fund, there's about $120 billion in that deposit insurance fund against $10 trillion of, of insured deposits in America. And it's been the bank lobby that has fought against proposals that is, does not want to have to put in more money, does not want to have to pay those insurance premiums to make sure all of those deposits are covered. So we're in a situation where bank regulators swoop in in a kind of haphazard way uh, when they see a bank, uh, when the decision is made uh, for a particular bank to swoop in and backstop uh, the uninsured deposits. But it's not clear uh, whether those guarantees extend to the entire banking system. Uh, there's a question of, is it fair to guarantee the deposits of uninsured depositors at a, a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, but not extend those guarantees to everybody else? And uh, Mercer Baradaran, what about this issue of the uh, federal deposit insurance? Uh, uh, to, uh, there, from what I understand, 96 percent of Americans don't have $250,000 to put into a savings account. So we're yeah. talking about a very small percentage of the American people uh, that are actually affected uh, even by the loss of money if they have more than $250,000 in a bank. Uh, why has the, the government, for instance, not even raised the, uh, as uh, David was saying, raised uh, the the minimum insurance uh, a little higher rather than now apparently go outside of its uh, legal authority to uh, to say we're going to insure all depositors at these banks? Yeah, yeah. So this I mean, this is a good question. And yes, something I said yesterday, there's, there's two kind of lies, right? There's white lies and there are FDIC insurance limits because FDIC insurance limits are not uh, meant to be, uh, you know, they are technically legal, but there's never been a crisis, you know, as far as back as you go, um, except for the Great Depression, where there wasn't FDIC insurance, that the limit caused a problem. And during 2008, also, we had a 100,000 limit, and they just raised it because it's not it's not about what money is insured. It's a, it's a cycle. A, a panic is a psychological phenomenon. So if I'm going to lose $100, to, you know, $1,000. Some people are going to take their money out no matter what, because, you know, it, it, it's your money. It's We're not talking about sort of like calculations. No one's sitting on their couch and going, should I go to the bank? It's only 50000 You know, it's it really is, um, you have to insure all of it or none of it. And so I've always understood the 250000 limit as like a suggestion for, you know, how to move your money around. But in a panic, of course, there's going to be a bailout. And it's not going to be through the FDIC insurance. It's through 13-3 Fed powers. This is all... Federal Reserve, uh, I mean, the systemic risk engines are on. Those engines are much more powerful than the FDIC engines. But I do want to say something about the ex-ante. Why Why was all of this stuff allowed to happen? And this is where we get to regulation. And and, and David said, you know, the, the haphazardness. That, that also is not uh, accidental. You know, I have personal, personal experience having been a, a nominee in the Biden administration and seeing the other nominees come through. We, we have not gotten, we, we uh, the Biden administration was not able to appoint a um, OCC uh, uh, regulator. Uh, they have an acting for that for the FDIC when that position came open. I mean, Trump's uh, 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 appointees vacated and, you know, they had to move things around for the FDIC. They had to bring someone from the board who was already confirmed and put, put them in, you know, and then for the um, OCC, none of the nominees that that, that uh, um, we, we got vetted got, you know, could get enough support. And so these are things that we, you know, regulators, if we had been in those positions, would have done uh, very differently uh, and very quickly. These are problems that we, we all knew about. Um, and, and I think it's it's not just that there, there's a haphazardness. There isn't really a forward motion. It's, it's defense because the industry really is quite powerful um, across the board. And it's not that the industry is, is 
you know, there's community banks over here and there's big banks, but at times there's, there's, there's just, you know, one incentive, which is sort of deregulation, you know, let's work out deals rather than create a lot of rigid rules and, and, and hierarchies. And especially for banks like Silicon Valley Bank, which, you know, there's no, there's, they weren't doing anything Lehman-like. They weren't doing anything, well, I mean, they weren't doing anything more risky than any other uh, uh, bank right now. It's just that um, banks that banks have runs. That's how banks work. And, and especially in a market like this, where interest rates are going up, you know, they have bonds, you have the crypto thing, who knows what, what sort of one or two thing, two three things cause the domino effect, but that 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 is the nature of banking. It's it's risk and it's uh, susceptible to runs. Well, like this. Let's let's go back to the 2018 Trump era law when Trump rolled back some banking regulations. Senator Elizabeth Warren spoke out against the bill that Trump signed off on, but Democrats and Republicans voted for it. This was her on the Senate floor before the vote. So I will make a prediction. This bill will pass. And if the banks get their way in the next 10 years or so, there will be another financial crisis. Of course, when the crash comes, the big banks will throw up their hands and say, it's not their fault. Nobody could have seen it coming. And then they'll run to Congress and beg for bailout money. And let's be blunt, they'll probably get it. But just like in 2008, there will be no bailout for working families. Jobs will be lost. Lives will be destroyed. The American people, not the banks, will once again bear the burden. And Senator Elizabeth Warren, of course, proved to be right. I wanted to go to David Sirota, one of the pieces in Lever News. Eight years before the second-largest bank failure in American history occurred this week, the bank's president personally pressed Congress to reduce scrutiny of his financial institution, citing the low-risk profile of our activities and business model. Um, can you take it from there? Tell us who is um, the CEO of SVB, and also talk about Barney Frank. Sure. Uh, Greg Becker, the Silicon Valley president, submitted testimony uh, when Congress was looking uh, at whether to weaken the uh, then-current Dodd-Frank law. And what he was particularly pushing for was to raise the thresholds uh, by which banks uh, were subject to stricter scrutiny. So there was a $50 billion threshold. If a bank was uh, bigger, had more assets than $50 billion, it faced higher capital requirements and more granular and more stringent uh, uh, stress tests to make sure that the bank wouldn't fail. Uh, ultimately, Greg Becker, uh, and he was not alone, but uh, he and the banking industry got their way, raising that threshold uh, for Silicon Valley Bank and other similarly sized banks. Uh, and Greg Becker, as one example, uh, just to use, use him as an example, I mean, he held a fundraiser at his home for Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. Uh, and soon after, uh, Mark Warner was one of those Democrats who, in that vote that Elizabeth Warren was talking about, was one of those Democrats that joined with 50 Republicans to pass that bill that raised those thresholds, that ultimately meant that a bank like Silicon Valley Bank was not subjected uh, by law, by rule, uh, by Federal Reserve regulatory uh, authority, uh, was not subjected to the kinds of uh, risk management and risk assessment uh, that it would have been subjected to uh, under the existing Dodd-Frank law. 
you mentioned uh, and Barney let me Frank. just interrupt uh, for Barney... a second David because we have sure. um, Senator Mark Warner he was questioned by ABC this week host Martha Raddatz uh, over the weekend and asked if he regretted his 2018 vote to repeal parts of the Dodd-Frank Act this is Senator Warner do you regret that vote Martha, I still think uh, we put in place Dodd-Frank. I was proud to be one of the key authors of that bill. It strengthened the banking system. I do think these mid-sized banks uh, needed some regulatory relief. End of the day, Martha, no matter what the capital had been in this bank, if you don't get banking 101 straight, if you don't manage your interest rate risks, if you've then got to run at $42 billion in a single day, unprecedented. That so, is Senator, a you, asset to somebody who's going you to don't regret that vote. Listen, I think that was called the 2155 bill. I think it put in place a appropriate level of regulation on mid-sized banks. David Sirota, your response to the Democratic Senator Mark Warner, who joined with the Republicans, along with, I think, 16 other Democratic senators, in weakening the Barney—the uh, Frank Dodd bill. What you're seeing there is the power of the banking industry. You're seeing the power of Wall Street right there. A U.S. senator who voted to deregulate Silicon Valley Bank goes on television and continues defending it, uh, defending the deregulation uh, that his donors wanted, defending it even in the face of a bank failure, a bank that pushed for that deregulation that got itself exempted. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the power of the banking industry in Congress. It is so powerful that even a Democratic senator will go on television after a bank failure uh, from a bank that was exempted from those uh, more stricter, uh, uh, stringent rules, will go on television and, and defend that bill. Now, I'm glad to see that uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter and others have said that they are going to put forward legislation to reverse what happened, what Mark Warner, as an example, supported. And that's a good thing. And there's, a, as, as we talked about before, there's talk of extending uh, uh, deposit insurance. But the thing that has to happen, in my view, is that if you're going to extend deposit insurance and, and you need to, one, make sure the banks put up the money uh, for more of that insurance, and two, that that insurance has to come with stronger regulations on these banks so that they cannot gamble uh, with depositors' insurance and that regulators can know that there aren't going to be uh, bank failures uh, as this proceeds. And Barney Frank, if you could answer that question, the author of the Frank Dodd bill. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an incredible story there. Uh, you've got the author of the Dodd-Frank bill who then gets on the board of a bank, a bank that was this weekend uh, shuttered. Uh, so it shows, in my view, it shows the revolving door here between the policymakers and the banks that are trying to weaken policy. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's almost a, a two—if you put it into a movie about corruption, uh, you, your, your, your uh, screenwriter would say, you can't put that in. It's too on the nose. It's too ridiculous for the author of the bill uh, to be on the board of a bank that was just shuttered. And, Mercer, uh, Barad, I wanted to ask you—David uh, Sirota mentioned uh, Greg Becker, the, uh, the, the CEO of this uh, failed bank. He was also a member of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco until this weekend. Uh, could you mm -hmm. talk about the, the role of the Federal Reserve Bank? Because uh, some people are claiming that it's the, uh, the rapid interest rate hikes of the Federal Reserve Bank that is leading to some of the stresses uh, in some of these mm -hmm. banks. 
Right. Well, the Federal Reserve does a variety of things, but one of the things that it does, so one is the monetary policy. That's the interest rate hikes. That's actually just the bank's fault. They, everyone on the market knew that the rates were going up and they, they, that, they just screwed up. Uh, and I, who has any explanation for why? Maybe they don't understand how banks work, but the bonds that, that they held on for way too long. Um, so that's just a bad mistake. But uh, as far as the Fed's supervisory role, right? So the Fed has the monetary policy, but the Fed is actually the person who, the, the entity that is supposed to look at these systemic risks. So it's not just the FDIC. The FDIC manages just insurance, which is a very, very tiny portion of actually what causes a bank run. None of the banks in 2008 that were in the shadow banking sector, none of them had depositors. Uh, just, you know, uh, City Citigroup maybe had a little bit, but Lehman and Goldman and all these, they, they were not even bank holding companies at the time. And so and the FDIC is is kind of a small, very small fish now in the big pond of, uh, of banking regulators, especially since the financial crisis. But since the financial crisis, one of the things that was decided was, look, you have these companies like AIG and these non-banks and that are causing these crises that are doing banking. And so there was this, you know, the SIPI exception, the systemically important financial institutions um, where everyone has to do systemic risk um, stress testing. I, I mean, even at the time, you know, I've written about these laws for 10 years. Even at the time, I think those laws were very weak, meager um, responses to the financial crisis. They didn't do it. But this bank got an exception from those laws. The systemic risk, sort of that stress testing thing, it's supposed to be above a certain 50 billion or something. You get certain different requirements. And, and that, the Crapo bill in 2018, the one that Warren was talking about, um, very presciently saying, they, it, this would be unprecedented, which is what exactly what this president said. It, you know that that bill essentially took these um, a carved out exceptions for um, some of these banks, including this one, for the reasons of you know it's better for communities, right? And it's it's, it's better for uh, uh, small loans and things like that. And so now now we're using, I think, in a in a very um, cynical way, unfortunately, we're it is true that we have a glut of community banks in this country. It is true that we've got five major banks and they're not lending those small to mid-sized um, accounts. And so we do need regulatory relief, whatever that means in that in, in that language, to help these small banks. But that's not what this was. This was loop, a loophole. This was an exception for not a community bank. These were venture capital funds. I mean, they need the money. I mean, Silicon Valley, all of these companies need someone to service their their finances, but that's just a, a symptom of a broken financial system. It's 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 uh, sort of rent seeking everywhere you go. And uh, J.P. Morgan will probably buy this bank, and who knows if they'll give the same services as SPB Bank did. Finally, uh, on a different subject, David Sirota is founder of Lever News, which has been doing so much on East Palestine, and there might be some parallels. You've uh, looked at uh, the last month's toxic train derailment. Do you see a link between the rollback of railway safety regulations and banking regulations? And talk specifically about the rail lobbyist turned senator who could block the safety bill. Yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty of parallels here. I mean, the crisis happens. Uh, there uh, is a push for regulation. Then the, people forget, or the politicians hope people forget. Uh, and then uh, there's a, a, a deregulatory push. On the rail situation, uh, there was a spate of, of, of derailments uh, in the in the 2014-2013 uh, that prompted a push for more regulation. Uh, when that push for regulation happened, uh, chemical industry lobbyists, uh, 
uh, essentially weakened the rules to make sure that trains like the one in Ohio were not classified as high-hazard flammable trains, uh, made sure that they weren't subjected to those tougher rules. So you can see the parallel there with the banks. Again, a push to, to, to not subject the banks to tougher rules, a push to not subject the rail companies to tougher rules. A disaster happens. Now there's a push for new regulations, uh, rightly so, in my view. The Rocana bill with Chris Deluzio from Pennsylvania in the House. Uh, there's a bipartisan bill in the Senate. Uh, but there's already been an effort to slow walk them. And that effort to slow walk them has been led, as we reported at the lever, uh, has been uh, spearheaded by John Thune, the Republican senator who's the number two uh, ranking uh, Senate Republican, uh, who was literally a registered lobbyist for a railroad company and who has spearheaded in the past the effort to stop these regulations. We have been doing this reporting. Uh, it's important to hold these politicians, their feet to the fire, whether it's Mark Warner or John Thune. Uh, we hope Democracy Now! Uh, viewers will help us. You can find all our work at levernews.com slash democracy now to help us continue doing this reporting. Because, Amy, your question is exactly right. Who are the politicians who are playing the role to stop the regulatory policies that need to be put in place after these crises? I guarantee you, whether it's on rail issues or whether it's on banking issues, uh, there will be even you saw Mark Warner uh, on 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 financial stuff. You will see John Thune on rail stuff that even in, in the aftermath of a disaster, these lobbies are so powerful that they have people in places like the U.S. Senate to stop anything from happening. And the only way anything will happen, whether it's on rail safety or on, on, on regulating the banks, will be if enough people actually respond and demand that their lawmakers take action. David Sirota, want to thank you for being with us, founder of The Lever, and we'll link to The Lever at democracynow.org, and Marissa Baradaran, banking law professor at the University of California, Irvine. Progressive groups at one point back Baradaran as the Biden administration's pick for controller of the currency which is an influential regulator of banks. Next up, an independent autopsy of the activist shot dead while protesting the construction of Cop City in Atlanta suggests that they were sitting cross-legged with their hands in the air when police shot Tortuguita 14 times, killing him. We'll speak to the family's attorney and hear from their parents. Stay with us.
I knew I could fly by our native daughters. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn to Georgia, where a newly released independent autopsy of the activists fatally shot by Atlanta police in January concludes their hands were raised up and in front of their body when they were killed, Georgia State Patrol shot Manuel Esteban Terán, who's known as Tortuguita, and uses the they-them pronouns, during a raid on an encampment of forest protectors who oppose the construction of Atlanta's $90 million police training center, dubbed Cop City, the largest such police training center, if built, in the country. The independent autopsy released Monday at a news conference by Tortuguita's family shows the 26-year-old activist was likely seated cross-legged when they were shot 14 times. This is Tortuguita's father, Joel Paez, speaking Monday at a news conference in Decatur, Georgia. My child was an upstanding individual that gave his life for others. They gave his life for his ideals. They defend the environment. They convince others with conviction and also with understanding and never with violence. My child is a hero. Tortuguita's family has sued the city of Atlanta after the release of more video evidence of the shooting of their child was blocked. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI, alleges Tortuguita fired on an officer first during the raid and was killed by return fire, but says there's no body cam footage of the shooting. At Monday's news conference, Tortuguita's mother, Belkis Teran, called on the GBI to release its investigative report into the killing. My child, Manuel Esteban Paez Teran, was killed here in Atlanta on the 18th of January, 2023. We still do not know anything. I was, it was killed our most beloved family member and the most caring person that any group, group of people could have, and there is only silence. Manuel loved the forest, gave them peace. They meditate there. The forest connect them with God. I never thought that Manuel could die in a meditation position. My heart is destroyed. I invest so much time, care, and dedication to educate my children to become active members of a society. I gave them love and compassion as tools to make the world a better place. But now there is no answer. Answers. I try to be, to be strong, to continue Manuel's legacy for the love of my family and for all those love Manuel. I want answers for my child homicide. I'm asking for answers 
to my child homicide. I am suffering for my right to, do, to this answer and that I have not been given and I deserve, I deserve answers. Thank you. That's Belkis Tehran, the mother of Manuel Tortuguita Tehran, speaking Monday. Just the day before, she and other family members joined activists to spread Tortuguita's ashes in a memorial ceremony in Wolani People's Park. For more, we go to Atlanta to speak with Jeff Filipovitz, the civil rights attorney representing Tehran's family. Welcome to Democracy Now! Jeff, if you could start off by talking about what you understand happened at this point and the meditation position that uh, Tortuguita's mom was talking about. How is it that the autopsy showed that Tortuguita was sitting in a cross-legged position with arms up? The police say that Tortuguita shot them. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. So I want to be clear about what the autopsy shows and what it doesn't show, because the autopsy does not give us the conclusive answers that all of us hope that it does. The autopsy shows exit wounds on the palms of both of Manuel uh, Tehran's hands and shows wounds to their legs that are consistent with being seated in a cross-legged position when that shot was fired. But the autopsy doesn't answer the question about what happened in the moments leading up to the shooting. And when we're talking about police use of force, and especially police use of deadly force, those moments can be determinative. A fraction of a second can make all of the difference in the world. And so while we're trying to shed light on and bring public knowledge to everything that has happened as much as we can. Ultimately, until the GBI explains to us what happened, releases their witness interviews, and releases any other evidence that they have, we're not going to be able to piece this together. Well, what about the issue of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation asking the city to hold off on releasing more video footage? Uh, what is the reason uh, they're uh, giving for that? Well, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is invoking the uh, uh, pending uh, investigation exception to the Georgia Open Records Act. But the city of Atlanta makes its own independent decision as to whether to release videos. And so the city began releasing videos, promised to release videos on an ongoing basis. And only after the GBI contacted the city did the city change its mind and decide not to release those videos. It's... Um, it's part of a pattern of locking down information so that we cannot figure out what happened. The GBI certainly has the duty to interview witnesses without disclosing to each of those witnesses what other evidence there is. That's, that's standard in, in all investigations, but they have had plenty of time to do that. And at this point, there's no reason to withhold this evidence. The public deserves to know. More importantly, the family deserves to know. And instead of any shred of evidence or explanation, the only thing we got was the immediate and selective narrative that was released by the GBI and then silence. And so and, we and, are doing everything that, we can to get what, 
get the evidence that is available. And that narrative is supposedly that uh, uh, that Manuel had a, a Smith and Wesson a gun that shot a trooper with, and that there's a ballistics match uh, between uh, the injured trooper and that gun. Has the family received any uh, actual evidence or seen any actual evidence to back this up? No. And what about um, activists believing that friendly fire caused the troopers' injuries? One of the four body cam videos released by the Atlanta Police Department, APD, February 6th, supports the assessment. In it, a police officer, an APD officer, can be heard remarking, you effed your own guy up a few minutes after the shooting. Can you explain that, Jeff? I can't, because after that video was produced, the city stopped producing uh, additional evidence. Our questions are, what did that officer know? What was the source of that information? What was communicated over the radio? What was said by other officers? We need all of that information so that we can place that statement in context. Every time we get a bit of information, it raises more questions. Those questions continue to go unanswered. I wanted to go to Tortuguita's brother, Daniel Paez, speaking at Monday's news conference. I can't even attend a vigil for Manny without 10 cop cars uh, showing up or a low-flying helicopter showing up to intimidate us. In Atlanta, I feel hated. The current narrative is that my voice values less for being out of state despite my 10 years of military service. It's ironic, I'm trusted with nuclear secrets, but I am not trusted with the evidence of my siblings' murder. So that's Daniel Paez, the brother of Tortuguita. Um, Jeff Filipovitz, if you can talk about what is happening at this protest, dozens of the forest defenders, and they're all different groupings of people who are opposed to what, if it's built, will be the largest police training facility in the country, in the Wilani Forest, outside Atlanta. Um, dozens have been charged with domestic terrorism? Yes. Um, it's really a, a troubling development. Um, what I can speak to specifically is the arrest warrants that were taken out against each of these demonstrators charging them with domestic terrorism. When an arrest warrant is issued, there has to be a factual basis for it. The officer has to set forth the facts in an affidavit that establish probable cause. And what we see in each of these affidavits is that there is no specific allegation of any one of these individuals engaging in an act of violence, no specific allegation that any one of these individuals conspired to engage in violence. And so we see a rubber stamp of these charges, and as a result, a seemingly automatic denial of bond for all of those arrested. But what appears to be happening is that people are being swept up with this label, regardless of whether they've committed any crime beyond criminal trespass. It's an obvious show of force. It's an obvious escalation. And it is a precedent that having been set, will be applied to other groups. It will be applied to the next protest. Should someone at a protest commit an act of vandalism, are those who stand around that person now also domestic terrorists? 
if nothing more than property damage is what is required to support that charge, then we are living in a vastly different uh, set of laws and set of rules than I think any of us really realized. It, it, it is contrary to so many core values of this country. And, and at, a, at a press conference in February, you said that many of those who were present at the raid where Manuel was killed were even afraid to speak to you due to the mounting police targeting they're experiencing. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I, I mean, anyone who is in the forest does not want to come forward. Now, there, as far as we know right now, there was no other direct witness to Manuel's death aside from law enforcement. There were other people in the forest. Many of those people were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. Would someone who was not arrested but in the forest want to come forward and put their name on a statement to anyone? Of course not. Because look what has happened to every other person charged with domestic terrorism. They are facing an intense criminal charge. Many, most, have been denied bond. And that is a way to silence people. I don't know what else it could be. Read from an arrest affidavit um, for someone charged with domestic terrorism. Quote, Occupying a treehouse while wearing a gas mask and camouflage clothing, arrested while sleeping in a hammock with another defendant, said accused is also known as a known member of a prison abolitionist movement, domestic terrorist, Jeff Filipovitz. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, they either have evidence that these people are engaged in a conspiracy to commit violence— that is, is such a frightening display of coordination and that just, for whatever reason, simply has not come to fruition. Or these are charges that are not supported, that will not hold up, and these are charges that are being used even though they know it won't hold up ultimately because they can use it now to stifle dissent so that they can build the training center that they want to build. Can you tell us about the lawsuit that the family you filed on behalf of the family of Tortuguita? It's an open records lawsuit under Georgia law seeking for the uh, release of the evidence that the city of Atlanta promised to release. Uh, The city of Atlanta publicly stated it would do so. There is no provision in the Open Records Act which allows a public entity to simply change its mind. Uh, there is uh, previously the law did provide a limited number of days in which an entity could change its response to an open records request. That provision was removed in the most recent version of the law. And regardless, they have had plenty of time. The fact that another government agency disagrees with their decision is not sufficient reason to it's not a justification to refrain from making public records public. Remember, these are public records. The default is that they belong to the people and should be released to the people. And so once this government starts to release these piecemeal and promises to do so, uh, they have an obligation to continue. They said they carefully orchestrated the raid that ultimately killed Tortuguita. How is it then that there isn't police cam video? You have 10 seconds. I don't know. It is inexcusable. They were forming firing squads, shooting pepper balls. 
they were prepared for this. They knew that things could go catastrophically wrong. And for some reason, they decided not to put on a body cam. Jeff Filippa, that's want to thank you very much for being with us, civil rights attorney representing the family of Tortuguita. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thank you.